felt like last time I forgot how to do the podcast. <clears throat> okay. <laughs> Behold! The sword of power. Excalibur. Welcome to the Oh Gosh, Oh Golly, Oh Wow podcast, the podcast where we talk about the Marvel comic series Excalibur and nothing but Excalibur every week for 126 plus weeks. This week we are discussing Excalibur 85, Edge of Night, and Wolverine is here. Pretty sure I said way back in our episode on Excalibur 41 that we wouldn't be seeing him again, and this is the second time since then, so I am a liar. Excalibur number 85 <laughs> was originally published in January 1995. We are in the 95s, and the creative team is Warren Ellis on writing, Ken Lashley on pencil. Tom Weggerson on inks, Joe Rojas on colors, John Babcock on letters, and Suzanne Gaffney and Bob Harris on editing. When they come out, does it hurt? Every time. So what kind of a name is Rogue? I don't know. What kind of a name is Wolverine? The Soul Sword trilogy keeps trucking along, but not for much longer. It will specifically be ending today, but not before much stabbing ensues. We'll be analyzing every slash and snicked with the rigor it deserves, but who are we? Speaking for myself, I am Dr. Anna Papard. I'm currently contract faculty at Trent University and Brock University, teaching comics at both places somehow. I like talking sexy, gendery things in comics and pop culture all around everywhere and at the Twitter account Sequential Scholars, where at the time of this episode dropping, Andrew and I will be wrapping up a series of threads on Silver Age comics and preparing duh, 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 a unit on Chris Claremont's X-Men Revolutions at his his uh, return to the X-Men in the 2000s. So you're going to want to hang on to your butts for that. I am also Kurt Wagner's unofficial PR manager, a job which sometimes involves giving him a handful of Tylenol and an ice pack after he spent two issues getting the demonically possessed shit beat out of him. I am joined, <laughs> as always, by Mav. Please cut to your credentials. If somebody were to like call me Christopher, I would notice. It's a thing that I would just I would just pick up on because because you know no <laughs> oh, one does that. And you <laughs> would know that they're a shapeshifter or possessed or an alien or a demon. I would presume. Um, like, <laughs> and, it, and it's a thing because I know I would notice because every time in real life. Uh, so by the way, hi, my name is Christopher Maverick, but you can call me Mav <laughs> at the beginning of every show because everyone calls me Mav. My wife calls me Mav. 
my nieces and nephews call me Mav. My mom switches back and forth between Chris and Mav, depending on who she's talking about. But like, I recognize her voice to where like I know. The, but even then, like she knows to call me Mav if she like wants to get me get my attention. It's just the name that I use. So if someone were like Christopher, which is a name that I like sign on you know publications and stuff because it is my name, I would pick up on that. And and that's where I'm starting with for for this week. But you know, beyond that. <laughs> I'm a <laughs> teaching professor of, inter- of digital narrative and interactional design, pop culture at University of Pittsburgh. That's what I do. And, and, and that's just, that's my rant where I'm starting for this particular episode. <laughs> It'll come up. Well, I'm sure it, it, it will probably come up. Um, not that it has anything to do with the comic that we read at all. Uh, <laughs> it, it does. Readers will. Of the, I mean, these issues are on Marvel Unlimited again. So if you're not reading yes. along with the pod, what's your excuse? You catch you up again. Be. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Andrew, please revisit your seminal training. Uh, most of my training was at a university called Lakehead, uh, a campus that would issue bear and wolf warnings at a volume that was greater than ever. Uh, <laughs> these days, though, I am a lecturer at St. John's University um, and co-project lead of Sequential Scholars, which, as Anna mentioned, will soon be swerving back to Chris Claremont, which I think I sold Anna on doing oh, with oh. the ability to discuss Kurt's religious conversion that he experiences oh, i think i specifically said i don't okay. want to discuss it but we'll we'll <laughs> circle back to that <laughs> i hear he's catholic i don't know if you guys knew that did, did you ever pick up on that <laughs> it's, important it's, his identity. it's subtle you know <laughs> Next yeah month. very subtle <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it was a troubling storyline, that particular one Andrew was referring to. But I have been bugging Andrew for a long time to revisit some later career Claremont. So I'm very anxious to hear his thoughts about that era. So I'm looking forward to it for that reason. Nice. So we are joined this week by a super smart comic scholar and Wolverine aficionado. And his name is Dr. Justin Weigard. Welcome, Justin. Uh, Thank you for having me. And that's also very, very kind of you to say. I don't know exactly about all of those things, but I really appreciate it. <laughs> well, we'll give you a bit more of a build up, Justin, by giving our listeners a little bit of an intro into all of the awesome stuff that you get up to. So Dr. <laughs> Justin Weigard is a postdoctoral research fellow in the Distant Viewing Lab at University of Richmond, where he works and teaches in the areas of pop culture, game studies, comic studies, children's literature, and digital humanities. He is the co-editor, very exciting, of the forthcoming book, Attack of the New B Movies, Essays on Sci-Fi original films, which is the first academic treatment of sci-fi channels original films, including such classics as Sharknado. He has further published on popular representations of race, gender, and sexuality in visual forms, including the Hallmark Channel's garage sale mystery film series, professional wrestling, and street, final, street fighter, rather, chronotopal representations of feminism in Marvel's Jessica Jones, Monstrous Motherhood in Neil Gaiman's Coraline, and the transmission of blood dimes across video games in the Jurassic Park and X-Men the animated series properties he also wrote a master's thesis on Wolverine which we're going to talk about Justin you told me how to pronounce that word three separate times before we recorded this podcast yeah Tell us about what that is. What was I want to believe it's La Dimes with exactly that cadence that Aiden's used. (laughs) Specifically that way. Anyway, tell us, tell us, tell us about that term because I want 
it is in very interesting. So explain that to us a little bit first. Sure. Uh, thank you for that that intro. Uh, I'm actually going to give it that pronunciation whenever I talk about this stuff. Oh, from please now don't. On. Please don't. <laughs> um, uh, so that that term ludim, it, I'm kind ludeme. of both borrowing. Yeah, yeah, ludim. It comes from uh, ludology or ludos, uh, you know, which is like sort of the uh, uh, like the Latin term for play and games, right? And I'm kind of borrowing that term from this scholar in the 80s who kind of also borrowed it from like and kind of traced it back to things like graphemes and phonemes and morphemes. So phonemes and morphemes being like the smallest sort of units of language in in language. And then you have things like graphemes being a lot of the very small, you know, unbreak downable, a very scientific term for visual elements. And then ludemes kind of being something similar, these playable mechanics or these sort of intractable figures and things that kind of transfer across games. So kind of one of the things I'm, I'm talking about sort of tracing, I guess, in relation to like you know, X-Men games particularly, are the fact that, like, starting in the late 80s and early 90s with, like, the X-Men arcade game, you see, like, those very classic animated series costumes on all the X-Men in, like, the arcade game. And then when the X-Men characters pop up in a lot of other video games later on throughout the years, they kind of keep popping up in that, in those costumes. I think that's fascinating. Mm -hmm. I kind of, I, 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 very, very uh, lucky to be appearing in, uh, to be writing about it in um, Nick Miller, Jeremy Carnes, and, and uh, Margaret Galvin's forthcoming volume on the series. Oh, nice. We've mentioned that book so many times on the pod. We just had Jeremy <laughs> on a couple of episodes yeah. ago, mm-hmm. and we've had Nick, and we've had Margaret on as well. We're waiting <laughs> with bated breath for that one. I It's so fascinating, Justin, but every time I see that word written down, I just see lewd memes in my mind and then I can't get past that and then I'm very distracted but anyway all the stuff that you do is so interesting but I do want to talk to you about comics today so tell us a little bit about your comics origin story Justin have you been a lifelong reader of comics is it something you came to later what's what's your origin yes to all of that uh okay so I I, I grew up in a, a small town in, in the middle of Michigan and we in, in Holton Lake, Michigan, and we didn't have like a comic book shop around at all. So one of my very first like, you know, impressions, engagements with comics was actually through the cartoon series. Right. So uh, especially like the Saturday block of Spider-Man and X-Men and, and Batman. And then I also have an older brother named Jay who introduced me to comics, kind of just kept pushing comics on him. He's like, oh, here, you should read this thing. And I'm, I'm like way too young to be reading some of the stuff. You know, I'm like eight, nine. And he's like, oh, you should check out Age of Apocalypse because you like the X-Men. I think that's the and... perfect age for that. <laughs> <laughs> Some, sometimes so... people die. You need to learn that young. It's like, if you ever remember that Star Trek episode where Worf is like, look, look upon death. <laughs> yeah, you want to... <laughs> that's that's what is happening much... here. Yeah, it's, that's, it's also like very much like how my brother introduces stuff to me. He's like, oh, you like this thing? Here's like a really dark and like messed up mm. version of that thing. But it's it was good, right? And uh, I would also, I got a love of like really old comics from my grandpa too. So like Western comics and a bunch of oh. these other things. But but really, my, my love of comics kind of really comes from going to the library and coming across a volume of uh, Calvin and Hobbes and specifically the essential Calvin and Hobbes. And from there, I've just sort of been in love with comics all throughout, you know, kind of going through different phases here and there of 
know what I've been consuming, but really like Calvin and Hobbes especially has sort of been with me through the last, you know, however many decades of reading comics. It's only until like recently that I've kind of found like the lanes of like comics collecting that I'm really into. I I, I feel like I've been working on a collection of Usagi Ojimbo and Ooh. Turok Son of Stone. And those Ooh. have been sort of like, yeah, you know, like very, very like me things once you get to know me, like dinosaurs <laughs> and like... <laughs> Uh, I love the fact that old comics creators were calling them honkers back in the 50s. Like, that just tickles me to no end. Uh, And so then in college, I was trying to figure out, like, what I wanted to do. I went into college early on, and I wanted to become an art teacher, uh, like a K-12 art teacher. I realized pretty early on, I'm like, oh, I like teaching but i don't like making art every single day it's like pull, it's like pulling teeth i yeah. i would be in studio i'd be in studio classes and my classmates would be just turning out incredible doodles and i would spend like six weeks trying to make a not great thing is really what it comes down to i ended up pivoting into elementary education and when i was in there i was kind of taking some language arts classes literature courses i had a couple of professors who introduced me to the fact that i could study things like comics that i could study and write about Calvin and Hobbes and, you know, the X-Men and Batman and all, all of these other things and Superman. And that's kind of what hooked me. And I realized that I could kind of continue doing that. And so comics were really my entryway into academia and scholarship and, and also teaching too, which is kind of how I'm always trying to, how and why I'm always trying to work in comics into my classroom and whatever fashion oh okay yeah i like the way all those kind of threads sort of came together for you in (laughs) this magical realm of comics well let me ask you a little bit about about your thesis then because we that's why we sort of got chatting about joining having you well i i'd actually wanted to get you on the podcast for a while i think i pitched it to you back when we were just developing the podcast because i was like justin's a cool comic scholar i know we got to get him on the pod but we were just looking for a good spot and then you told me that you wrote this ma thesis about Wolverine and sort of specifically about Old Man Logan, but also talking about the Hulk and Wolverine and some of their earlier portrayals as well and going through some of that history. So what made you want to do that project? What made you want to choose this comic and these characters for your for your MA thesis? I, I feel like most thesis projects are, are like a little bit weird, right? Like there's always like a slight origin story, even if it's like a, like a not great one. Mine is great, by the way. I just, I, I always feel like when I'm talking to other <laughs> folks about their thesis, right? It's like, oh, it came about because of this weird thing. Uh, I was in a, a course with an old professor of mine, Dr. Joseph Michael Summers, and he was teaching a graduate seminar on Mikhail Bakhtin and comics. And I was, I think at the time I was in like a in my senior year of undergrad, but I was doing an independent study with him. And for the first three weeks, we basically read like three heavy Bakhtin books. So like his book on dialogism, his book on the grotesque and Rabelais, and then his book on uh, poetics and dialogics, right? And in that comics course, we basically started with like a heavy trio of like like deconstructions of some of the superheroes. So we did uh, Old Man Logan. We did one of the Batman stories. I can't remember what. And I want to say we did a Superman story. I can't quite remember what it was. But Old Man Logan really hooked me because I was like, oh, like this is like brutal and weird. And also there's a Venom symbiote T-Rex, which is like <laughs> always a good sell for me. <laughs> 
and when I was reading through the book, I was like, oh, like, I, I, I kind of want to, like, know more about, like, you know, Hulk and Wolverine battling. I was like, I know that they, like, Hulk, that's how Wolverine, you know, entered into comics continuity was mm-hmm. fighting the Hulk. But I was like, have they, did they always fight like this? Right. And so I kind of started tracing those battles throughout comics history. And also, I, I really wanted to study this book, but I needed to, like, narrow it in scope because otherwise, like, doing anything with, you know, superhero continuity as y'all talked about you know for, for so long <laughs> yeah. it's it's messy and so i started tracing these battles and i realized that they also kind of started coinciding with what i thought were really interesting like popular culture moments and initially when when the hulk and wolverine start battling like you know way back in the day you know wolverine's introduces a villain and hulk is obviously you know the hulk but then each subsequent battle it seems like the hulk kind of gets more monstrous in in each battle right like some of them are like just that he's a little bit more primitive or maybe like the hulk you know has taken over a little bit more and banners a little bit less there in some of them they're a little bit more graphic because like they're you know 90s or 2000s reinterpretations where like the hulk tears wolverine in half and hucks half of him across a mountain right um and in each one of those two each one of those battles too like wolverine kind of starts getting a little bit more refined and like he's trying to move on like he doesn't want to keep doing this song and dance over and over again he wants to like be thinking differently he wants to be doing something new and so i kind of started thinking about it in terms of like all of these different you know genres that they move through as well as like these kind of in these battles and just solely in these battles this kind of like conservative uh liberal ideology kind of clash you know i don't really want to speak too much beyond those but like in these clashes there's like it almost feels like they're little pockets out of time and that's kind of what my thesis digs into oh okay can i press you a little bit about the character of Wolverine in particular. I mean, well, maybe I could ask it in terms of the broader context of X-Men too. You know, what particularly kind of draws you to that world or think that it's worth talking about or that character of Logan in particular? I know, obviously, from reading your discs and, you know, from the variety of your interests that you know that that character coincides with a lot of different types of popular characters. But yeah, I mean, what about this character in particular, though? Like, what makes this character special to you? I think in a lot of ways, it really came about from from like two ways. One one would be like just playing as as the I'm always going to have like a little spot in my heart for the the six X-Men in the arcade game because like you got to yeah. play them and like that, I got to do that with like my my brother and my friends. But when I was reading Old Man Logan, you know, it was set against the, you know, like a very post-apocalyptic, but like a Western setting. Mm-hmm. And also, you know, like there's all of the like Eastern adventures and like Eastern philosophies that he kind of adopts with like the like the samurai storylines and things. And so when I was reading that story like i i kind of just started clicking with it but also like my grandpa had like passed away relatively you know around there and so trying to like do this thesis that was about comics and i was also like studying like western movies in particular you know like the the man with no name trilogy and reading a bunch of like westerns that i had inherited from him i was like oh like i kind of really feel like i like there's a there's like a weird connection there not necessarily that my grandpa is wolverine because god no <laughs> my uh my grandpa is just like <laughs> it would be very very different upbringing but just that uh you know he introduced me to comics and westerns and now i'm like yeah, kind of yeah. making my way in with this this character who's also kind of been through all these things i kind of just connected that way beyond that though i'm i'm like the the nicest guy and the fact that wolverine is like this <laughs> very complex complicated like homicidal guy at times uh there's there's very much like a split there <laughs> yeah. well he's such a hard character to talk about i mean i've written about the character before and right w- when i was writing about the character i just i remember i opened my piece with like a paragraph of like 
there are some Wolverines that I like and some Wolverines that I hate. So I don't know whether to say whether I like Wolverine or not, because it depends. <laughs> it depends a lot on what he's up to that day and how violence is handled and whether the comic buys into retribution through violence or whether the comic chooses to question that. So I like that version of Wolverine that's kind of trying to come up with a new way of doing things. And I less like the one that is unable to do that and falling into old patterns again and again. Although that can be an interesting story too, because it's not easy to just move on. You know, you are always following back into old patterns which is a very human way to be as well and i know some people do like that about the character but yeah he's like he's a hard character to to pin down that way yeah and you know as i was like kind of revisiting this too i feel like with this thesis i'm really proud of the work that i did then and i also think if i were to try to tackle this topic or this idea you know like 10 10 years on uh with like all of the you know comic scholarship that have been introduced to and just like the you know all the folks that have you know grown to respect his peers and continue like learning from i'm like oh, i don't know that i would write this all this way or like that i would i would i feel like i would have a lot of different lines in the sand to draw i guess and tackle i suppose oh well god we all feel like that if something <laughs> if something that we wrote like a month ago it's like oh my thinking has evolved yeah. so much in this month <laughs> but like, no it, it was good justin i read it it was good <laughs> thank you that's very kind of you to say but um, I want to get into your thoughts about this one in particular, because there's lots of like Wolverine and violence to talk about here and mentorship, which I know you're going to have stuff to say on. So let's do the issue summary and come back to those questions and talk about talk about sword fighting and and snicking. All right. So I know we've got lots of lovely listeners reading along with the pod. We're not locked in here with you. You're locked here and here with us, etc. Kind of muff that joke, but you get it. And we can prove it by hitting you with a wild plot summary. Excalibur number 85 opens where Excalibur number 84 closed with Kitty trying to figure out who to trust with the soul sword and why it's definitely not Shrill or the drooling snarling dude who says he's Kurt Shrill tells Kitty that Kurt is possessed by the evil sorcerer Grave Moss and Kitty believes her when she asks the computer to show her what's going on with the other members of Excalibur and they're all knocked unconscious or maybe dead in the lab. Kitty's on her own Kitty attacks Grave Moss Kurt with the soul sword wounding him then she is the sword inside her body as she tries to figure out what to do she flashes back to an earlier more innocent time watching Wolverine waste robots in the danger room while smoking a lot of cigars. But while Wolverine's tactics seem pretty darn deadly, he tells Kitty he's not teaching her to kill. He's teaching her to keep herself safe. Inspired by her convenient vision of the past, Kitty uses her ninja skills on Grave Moss Kurt. Grave Moss Kurt retreats to Kurt's quarters where he realizes Kurt can use swords. So he grabs a couple, tapping into Kurt's memories for the skill to use them. A sword fight ensues in which Kitty says the Rorjak line and seems to be winning until she's not. Grave Moss is a sorcerer after all. Shrill steps in to help, demanding Kitty end it by ending Grave Moss but Kitty refuses, knowing it will kill Kurt. Thankfully, another lady who likes Kurt shows up for more help, none other than Amanda Sefton, who was not killed in the previous issue. Finally, Kitty remembers something she probably should have remembered earlier, which is that the soul sword can be used to purge possessions. So she stabs Kurt after all, but it's fine because he pukes out an evil sorcerer. Kitty gives the sword to Amanda, who maybe kills Grave Moss? Then, in the epilogue, we're told Amanda gives the sword to Margali, and what a mistake that was. Margali, like Grave Moss, wants the sword for her own purposes to move ahead on the winding way, enhancing her personal power. Too late, Amanda realizes her rather large mistake. Okay, Justin. That does nothing to correct it. Yes. (laughs) The... (laughs) 
(laughs) Justin, coming to you with some first impressions, and we'll talk a little bit more about, well, you know, actually, that conclusion, like, we're not going to get the payoff of that for a while, (laughs) and then it's not even going to happen in the pages of Excalibur, so, I mean, (laughs) it's, like, almost not worth talking about, other than the sword sword's off the board now. But anyway, Justin, let's do your first impressions first. We can talk about some of that other stuff later. What about this issue are you particularly, if anything, looking forward to talking about? I'm going to make a confession in front of the the three of you and also all of the the listeners. This was actually my first full Excalibur comic that I've read. Um, That's fine. (laughs) Yeah. uh, It's so good. I I loved it. Um, (laughs) 20 20 pages of it are so good. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yes. I meant the Um, spirit. (laughs) <laughs> it's it's one of those comic series that I had probably like I actually I know that I had like glossed past it before listening to the podcast because on like covers alone like it kind of felt like a lot of other like 90s X-Men comics I was like oh like this is going to be a big thing to try to undertake and so I'm so thankful for the podcast for kind of introducing me to this thing uh I also meant to buy like a big batch of them back in uh Summit Comics and Games in Lansing and uh the weather like totally knocked me out from doing that but I, I, I was going to bring back like a bunch because there was a bunch in the dollar bins, but I kind of loved it. It really, the whole thing felt to me, uh, and I, I know a lot of this is from like reading a lot of Stephen Graham Jones and Grady Hendrix lately, but a lot of it felt very like final girly, but I also was getting a lot of like gothic tones with uh, mm-hmm. a lot of like the, the backdrop and the setting and, you know, the isolated island, but also like all of these little things that I felt kind of added up to that, that final girl trope. But also I was like, and yet Wolverine's here in the middle and he does all this thing. Uh, I'm all about it. I'm I'm sold and I'm going to go hunt down the rest of them now. <laughs> oh, well, I mean, we usually recommend people read the original run of the series rather than this particular era of the series, although it has gotten better lately. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We keep putting a pin in our Warren Ellis conversation, but it has gotten yeah. better since he took over as the writer um, because he is a better writer than Scott Lobdell. <laughs> Yeah, there's a dark period, so you know there's a mm-hmm. there's a particularly dark period of Excalibur that we're ending He's... now. We're done with the dark period, so. But yeah, yeah go back, read Sword Is Drawn, read the original Claremont Davis issues. We can rec- not Marshall recommend Man. those highly enough. <laughs> I think well, um I think we you read them all because I I will say and hopefully our our listeners feel this way. I think going through even the dark period makes you appreciate the series as a whole. It does. Much more. It does. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. You know, one thing, though, I, I, I was thinking about, too, that I hope we can talk a little bit about are um, Ken Lashley's pencils and particularly like his drawings of Kitty and Kurt, like first and, and uh, second half of the comic, too. I think Lashley does some interesting things that are maybe we're talking about. Uh, maybe not. Okay. I don't know. But <laughs> very happy, very happy to talk about Lashley's art. I think this is one of his better efforts on the series for sure. I enjoyed it more than some of the other issues where he was clearly more rushed. Well, there's a few pages here that seem rushed as well, but still, there's some there's some good pages in here. Um, let me pick up some first impressions from Andrew and Mav first, though, and we'll get into it a little bit more. How are you feeling about this one, Andrew? Um, kind of just just okay. Like I, I think I enjoyed the first part of the trilogy a little bit more. Yeah. Um, I, I think Ellis is going for something atmospheric and moody, uh, and and I agree. Lashley's art is really good in this issue, but I'm not sure it's well suited. Like I kept finding myself picturing this in like a Sienkiewicz style, also mm. set in a hospital and with a demon bear, yeah. uh, and that was like a like a better comic in my brain. But that yeah. might be kind of nitpicky. Like the colors were very bright, uh, and I think that maybe impacted it as well because I, I think maybe Ellis's vision of atmosphere wasn't always translating to the page the way that it maybe could have with a little bit more synergy. Yeah, that's fair. 
there. I mean, I think I mentioned this in our last episode, but it's a hard trilogy to put your finger on because the three different artists that work on it are wildly different. So each issue has a wildly different tone because of that. And like the first two were a little bit more... Well, I would say we had Dodson on the first one and that one felt kind of creepily domestic. And then we had a real gothic tone Mm. for the previous one. And then this one is very like 90s action, which, you know, I think works for the final girl thing. But I see what you mean in terms of it being a little bit less moody and gothic than the other issues for sure. Uh, Mav, how are you feeling about it? Mostly like it. There's I, I have some some really good praise throughout this for Lashley, where I think he one of the things that's sort of really cool about him is that he does some clear research and then there are things where he he misses just because just personal knowledge that i happen to have um particularly with fighting styles and with both um the fencing and the krav maga the martial art that kitty is doing (laughs) that um that the text does not actually mention because i presume warren ellis didn't know the name of it i I don't know it's it it is weirdly odd that wolverine goes out of his way to not say krav maga (laughs) so that was weird but but um but like i mostly like it I have serious issues with the last page, which I'm not convinced Warren Ellis wrote, but we'll get to that later. Yeah, that last page is a downer for sure after everything that it's, precedes it. It's also just poorly written. It's it's nonsensical in, in ways, which made me think, oh, this is an editorial mandate, but we'll get to that, I guess. Um, yeah. But I actually, I mostly, I mostly really like this. I was curious whether or not that you would like it because I would say this is an issue that Kurt is not in. Kurt's body is in it, but there's a question yeah. of... Like he, Kurt has no actual lines in this issue. I went through and checked. Yeah. Well, I mean, I do think it's a little bit disappointing that because we were talking about possession and stuff in the last episode and, you know, the things that that can do for us in terms of revealing insights about characters and whatnot. And there's absolutely nothing revealed about Kurt in this trilogy because he's just not present. So it is a little bit disappointing to have nothing of him like fighting against this presence or like anything. He's just absent and then like gets stabbed and just knocked out. And yeah, I know. Oh, yeah. So you're so you're reading up it is that is consciousness is just not here at all right because well shrill says that he's not in the body at all she actually she actually notes that your your friend's not in there so so i think it's i think that's a little different than i i I got the impression that this is not a hey you know two souls are warring over one body the way many possession stories are i think what we're supposed to believe is that for the duration grave moss has already won and kurt's just not in there to fight back i think that's what we're supposed to say (laughs) raises so many questions though so kurt is what like in grave moss's body stuck in the brimstone dimension like where is he then (laughs) i think think he's the soul in limbo i I think he's been displaced i think it's i think that's what we're supposed to i mean i think i and i think we're supposed to take it that way very specifically from those couple of lines or there's no point to those lines clearly the meat's there and the brain is there for grave moss to explicitly read because he's like i can read the knowledge of how sword fighting works but it's not this is not a thing like um this is not karma the new mutant possessing somebody or the yeah, shadow yeah, king yeah. where where there's a two two brains are inhabiting the body and it's not like the carol danvers spirit inside of rogue this is a this very intentionally seems to be like i stole your car you're not in your car right now i'm in your car yeah, but I mean, that's part of my complaint, right? Because the mm-hmm. choice to do it that way means there's not really a lot of character conflict here. It's just like a yeah, person who resembles none. Kurt, but it has nothing to do with Kurt. Yeah, it might as well, I mean, he might as well be, he might as well be a doppelganger rather than a, um, than a body possession. 
But even then, you would have the creepiness of, because, I mean, there's the implied creepiness of it's, like, Kurt behaving this way and, like, oh, isn't that crazy because Kurt's usually so nice, but it's not really, <laughs> like, part of the story that much. No. no. And, I mean, X-Men well, are just know. used to dealing with that kind of stuff, so, I mean, I guess it's fine. Yeah, I mean, Kitty doesn't even really, she's, like, upset about it, but she, she kind of just takes everything in stride. She's like, okay, this is just what's happening, I guess, and, yeah. uh, <laughs> I need to survive, right? Like there it's isn't Tuesday. There, yeah, yeah. Like there isn't too much of like a fear there. There isn't too much of like a oh man, what do we do to get Kerr back? It's just like, all right, focus on survival and also busting up this dude who's not Kurt. So I guess I'm just gonna take that on on brand and go. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's still interesting to me to see Lashley's style evolve in terms of how he draws Nightcrawler, because in some ways, this is actually less extreme than some of his earlier depictions of the not demonic character, because his art's still evolving, right? So I just can't really get a handle on his version of the character. This this reminds me a lot more of his depictions of Kurt Darkholm and his Age of Apocalypse issues. His style seems mm -hmm. a lot more uh, refined uh, here than it has in previous issues, and I did enjoy enjoy his art for the most part throughout this one okay let's talk about wolverine a little bit more i want to talk about the mentorship aspect and this flashback with kitty which again i did mostly enjoy i liked i liked some of what lashley did there in terms of making kitty look younger and really playing up her innocence and of course we had that i know and then we had the like flip on its side double page splash with the deluca effect of wolverine <laughs> tearing those robots a new one so i'll come to you with it first justin to talk about that question of mentorship like why is it important that wolverine acts as a mentor i think a lot of it kind of feels like you know trying to right past wrongs in a lot of ways but i think that and, and I, i'm also going to defer to y'all to some of this too as as far as like the mentorship in some ways because like i haven't read the full like Wolverine and, and uh, Shadowcat storyline. But one of the things I was thinking about is that like with the moments that Wolverine ends up doing some mentorship, a lot of it is about survival and less about creating more of himself, right? Mm -hmm, like mm -hmm. in, in this sequence, especially he doesn't, he's like, put away the sword. I'm going to teach. And he's not even like, I'm going to teach you how to fight. He's like, I'm going to teach you how to live and survive. Right. Yeah. Those, are really, <laughs> those are really important distinctions. And also it's a, again, you know, like, 90s slasher like it's very on the nose like you're going to live you're going to be the the final girl whatever it is right and yeah i think that that's kind of where it is like it's just like he he's really focused on like not creating more of himself and trying to trying to make folks live a little bit better more maybe he is here <laughs> yeah. i have questions I, well that's one of my issues that I, yeah <laughs> he says that well yeah lot. i mean go go ahead mav <laughs> if you want um okay so here's my reading of wolverine Wolverine says that a lot about Kitty. Yeah. Wolverine's a big fat liar who is being disingenuous. <laughs> he was ab he was absolutely training this 13-year-old girl to be a murderer and he made himself yeah. feel better by pretending he wasn't because like there's a lot of lessons of what becomes very clear to me throughout um, the Kitty Wolverine relationship, which I love, I, I love maybe more than I love any of Wolvie's relationships with any of his other young, fe young female mentees. Like X-23 is clearly just his daughter and I'm training you to be another murderer like me. Right. Yeah. Jubilee is different. Jubilee was a through convenience. I, I guess I'm just going to have to 
you know, deal with you. And then they become, you know, he's almost reluctant with her. So Jubilee just is what she is. Right. But Kitty is very much a, I'm going to train you to survive, except for every lesson that Wolverine ever gives her is like how to be a murderer. And it's literally the entire relationship. And this is going back to the Claremont days. It's all throughout the Kitty Pride and Wolverine series. It is, it's what they are. So the reason this matters is because when we get to Excalibur and when we get to Kurt Wagner Warlord issues where Kitty just straight up starts murdering people, you go, oh, okay, because this is who she is. And because she's a young woman now who was, you know, sort of raised by, you know, her, I would say her best friend older brother figure is what Wolverine becomes because he's not it's not the relationship that he has with that she has with um with Peter obviously who's like she's dating and it's not the relationship she has with Storm which is much more motherly Wolverine is very much a you know he's the cool older brother who will teach you to drink and teach you to smoke cigars and will teach you to fucking murder people because that's what he does and I and I think that <laughs> she's just you know like she she was in some ways just raised to be a psychopath and um, there are little bits where that comes out here or, you know, when she when she starts carrying around his bone claw later and, and you know, and killing right. people like that. That's just a thing that she that like I feel when done right is sort of a it's an aspect of Kitty. It's in, in the, ex, the extreme X-Men series always has that. She's just she's just dangerous. And it's not it's not like she's trying to be. It's just this is who I am currently in the Marauder series. You know, like how else could you be if you've grown up in this world? Andrew might agree with me here but I mean like there's there, there's always the thing though of like she is supposed to be the one who does it better though because she's the next generation and so like uh -huh. in Kitty Pride and Wolverine she chooses not to kill and that's the same thing here and then Amanda actually does the dirty work for her rather than making her do it uh-huh but that's because but that's but that's because Kitty will absolutely like Amanda was there to kill for her in Kitty Pride and Wolverine. Wolverine said, if if nobody's there, Kitty will absolutely snap Grave Moth's neck. <laughs> That's like if if she had to, she would like I and maybe not under Ellis because she says she kind of implies, oh, I was bluffing when I told him I'd kill Kurt's body. But like I've seen other stories which I buy where when Kitty's pushed to the edge, she'll do she'll make the hard choice. And I think that's what we're supposed to believe about her. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I would say anybody it's would make a hard thing. choice. Yeah, but like, no, yeah. Well, not, but I, I think I it's. I don't know that anybody would, right? It's the Cyclops thing. Like the Cyclops, Cyclops keeps Wolverine around so he can pretend he's a nice person, and Logan will yeah, kill sure, people for sure. Like that's not yeah, like like yeah. He, like he's not like he's not. And and when Wolverine's not there, it's like okay, I guess I'm killing people now. But like he pretends he's better because he doesn't have to be because Wolverine's there. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, it's still significant that the story is trying to protect her from certain types of violence and preserve her as a certain type of character. But anyway, Andrew, you wanted to jump in a second ago. Go ahead. Yeah, no, I think I read the relationship a little different, maybe even a little bit more nuanced in, in terms of at least what Claremont was trying to set up. Um, the idea is that Wolverine is kind of like your detached father. He cares very, very deeply about you. He's not really a brother figure to Kitty in my eyes. He's someone who wants the gentler path for Kitty, but he's he's never going to go to Kitty, right? She has to come to him. So like when um, Kitty oh, breaks okay. up with Colossus, Wolverine doesn't go and have a talk with Kitty on the cliff. He goes and gets Colossus's ass kicked. Do you know what I mean? 
So he, he's That's there in her world. world. He loves yeah. her, but he specifically yeah, yeah. maintains a distance with her for the longest time because he doesn't want her to become like him until the Kitty Pride and Wolverine miniseries, um, when Kitty is possessed by a demon assassin named Ogun, and he recognizes, as in Wolverine, that that gentler way is no longer an option for Kitty. And that's when he actually starts engaging with her very directly and training her. So I, I think it's a little bit, um, a few other missing pieces here. And I don't think Ellis is fully aware of a lot of those pieces, and therefore he's yeah. presenting a simplified version, which kind of makes sense to me in terms of what he's trying to do. Um, but yeah, no, I, I think Wolverine admires Kitty to a tremendous extent, the same way his relationship with Kurt is based on mutual admiration. The thing that I liked and didn't like about this flashback is that it very much seems like something that would have happened, but isn't the way it would have happened, because it doesn't really make sense with the Ogun stuff, but it still feels like something that could fit in some nebulous time in back in the uncanny days. But I also found it funny the way it's like very much the 90s visualization of Wolverine with the hair that's just become utterly outrageous <laughs> placed back in that space because you know the ways that Wolverine is drawn is so different in different eras he changes more than some characters do and that really comes across when we're doing a flashback like back like this particularly because they've gone out of their way to make Kitty look so young Lashley mm -hmm, has drawn her mm -hmm. like so that's that's the compression of time right like um this is clearly in my mind we are looking at 13 year old Kitty she's wearing the original costume and she's bean pole thin and she's you know cradling herself she's he's made her look like a little girl compared to the to the young woman that's in the rest of the book you know so i think that i think we're supposed to read this as her very early x-men days based yeah. on just the outfit if nothing else for sure yeah i don't know what else i have to say about it other than like <laughs> the justification of it didn't really come across to me. It's like, well, I'm not kill teaching you to kill. I'm teaching you to kill so that you're not killed. And I'm like, okay, isn't that the same thing? <laughs> but like, whatever. Well, but but I mean, I think, and that's, and again, it's, it's why I, it's why I always view her as, I view him as the protective older brother, because that's yes. Granted, he's actually like 200 years old at this point, but, um, but like just even mentality wise, that's the logic that you're, you know, you're six years older than you brother gives you no i'm just toughening you up so that you know i don't want you to be a bully but if a boy tries anything fresh with my sister i want her to be able to kick his ass so i'm gonna teach you to kill like that's that's the mentality and again why it's the same thing as why i read him as you know when when kitty and peter broke up andrew just pointed this out he doesn't go to her he goes to kick the ass of the guy who broke his, you know, his little sister's heart. Like that's, that's what, that's how I see him as different. Like why I don't read it as a father thing. I read it as a overprotective brother. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's just, I mean, we're just going to have a slightly different subjective reading. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. fine. But like, I don't know, I guess I just was thinking about it in terms though, of the way that the character of Wolverine had changed in the nineties and mm -hmm. the way that he had become sort of a m even more ultra violent and brutal character in a lot of ways. And the, way this retrospective flashback is kind of I don't know trying to negotiate that identity by like making it seem like there's a philosophy behind his violence but the philosophy is very shallow because it doesn't really make sense with the progression of the character so I don't know I just had feelings about it like that because anytime the justifications of Wolverine's violence come up it's always very interesting to me because this is an essential problem with the character right 
the character has to be this ultra-violent killing machine so that you can tell the story about Wolverine struggling with being an ultra-violent killing machine. But that means he has (laughs) to keep becoming an ultra-violent killing machine. And at this point, he's murdered how many people? And at this point, how forgivable is that? And it raises questions. He just, to me, is a character that's really been troubled and become very troubling because of his popularity that has necessitated so much murder. Yeah. <laughs> also with like a like a really loose code of like ethics or like guidelines that he kind of sticks to mm. until they're inconvenient and or until, you know, they need some kind of insane action piece and then he just throws him out the window and does the thing and then he just mutters the line, right? Even even some of like the action sequences in there, right? Like she she's kind of like shocked at what he did, even though presumably by this time she's seen him, you know, do all this ultra violent stuff. And half the things that he's doing already would be lethal anyways. I don't know. It's yeah. It's it's it, it, it was <laughs> I, I was not expecting to see, I guess, Wolverine on the cover, let alone, like, yeah. kind of messing all this stuff up. So it was a fascinating interjection. <laughs> well, maybe let's turn towards, because I know you wanted to talk about some of the Final Girl stuff, Justin, because that'll lead us into talking more about the action as well. But yeah, I mean, what was your take on the presentation of Kitty Pride here? Like, we've talked about Final Girl tropes with Kitty Pride a few different times on the podcast. I mean, it's something that goes back to some of the early, early depictions of the character. Um, something that's sort of been part of her story for a long time being put in these lone wolf situations where you have you know the small young girl who's beaten up the big scary monsters <laughs> hence the Buffy inspiration but yeah I'll just be curious about your thoughts on it like I had I had some mixed feelings about the mixture of violence and vulnerability I didn't hate it but it, it was complicated to me but I'm curious to hear your thoughts yeah I feel like the figure of like the final girl is always complicated right because on the one course, hand like yeah. like we're sort of watching like torture porn anytime we end up watching a slasher but we're also watching you know these like young women try to focus on survival for for me i was i was kind of fascinated because I, I went back and reread the other bits of the trilogy like each one of these issues feels like a different sort of like take on you know like we were talking about like the the second one with the gothic and the first one with it's it's like weird sort of like invasive intruder sort of a, mm-hmm. a home invasion kind of a subtext this felt very much like like something like the stepfather or something like that where it, there's a lot of like dramatic irony but also like there's these weird like dark magic kind of components with like grave moss healing him with some kind of bug magic thing yeah. i'm not entirely sure <laughs> And of course, like the interesting bit kind of happens like in between in the gutter in between the panels. Right. But then there's also like these points where, you know, she pulls the sword out and she's going to like start fighting and slashing him. And she does. And that's how you, you know, get rid of slashers, the actual like killers and slashers. But then she also like there's this pointed commentary where like she starts I think she like takes off a bit of her clothes for mobility sake, but also like lays her, her <laughs> stomach bare. I don't know. There's. A lot of a lot of back and mm-hmm. forth feelings on on it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's funny too how each of these individual artists have rendered this outfit that she was drawn in first by Dodson. Mm. <laughs> this doesn't look anything like what Dodson drew. <laughs> well, Dodson's better at drawing uh, close. <laughs> I well, I'm not sure. I have, I have questions and thoughts there. <laughs> so Go for it, this original outfit was created by kitty cutting it with a knife like because she because she didn't want to be conservative anymore and like okay that that's a choice but what i love about the outfit is she took it off last issue she or she didn't take it off they put her in a hospital (laughs) yeah that's Um, true why is she even in this (laughs) yeah and like and like and shrill and kurt 
slash grave moss were about to attack her on the last page yeah, of yeah, last yeah. issue but then they were nice enough to give her a chance to change clothes and put on some boots you know just to be safe mm-hmm. you know but like so so <laughs> i don't know i don't know that it's the same outfit because the other outfit had you know had leggings but you know she's going bare legged here and it's a you know and because they were going to give her time to put on the um to put on you know a nice skirt rather than a floppy hosp- hospital gown you know they might as well give her time to hem it too yeah because it's it's clearly not just a sawn off anymore and and trade out like the the combat boots she was wearing for some sort of pointy toe elfin slouch boots or whatever she's wearing here because those those are boots that you draw because you don't want to draw feet (laughs) right yeah those are the those are the 90s equivalent of go-go boots there were boots that sort of vaguely resembled that in real life but like they very much went hard in comics uh used to wear these all the time speaking as someone who you know drew a lot of superheroes they're real easy to draw no one really wore these but like all the x-men women wore them at that time because they were just real easy to draw i had a pair that like called back to them in like the early 2000s i had this Mm -hmm. pair of fry boots that were like done in a vintage style that i freaking loved and the salt on the streets of toronto ate a hole straight through the leather sole Mm. learned my (laughs) lesson on that those boots were so expensive and i was so devastated anyway andrew i was curious if you had any thoughts about this portrayal of kitty obviously you've talked about some of the earlier portrayals from the claremont era like how did this compare did this feel like an evolution did it just feel like a restatement how were you feeling about it i think i personally read it more as a restatement we've seen we've seen Mm -hmm. kitty do this a lot i mean the final girl trope has a lot to do with um sort of forced maturity the idea of of stepping into the hero's role um and kitty's done that so many times now that it almost feels insulting to put her through it again what i would have what i would have liked to see to kind of make it more interesting is um a little less reliance on wolverine's teachings and a little more of like kitty ingenuity the things that make kitty special as a hero Mm -hmm. i think that would have added a little bit more nuance to it um so yeah i mean like like we've seen this story before i don't have a problem with it 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 puts a, a a nice spotlight on kitty a character who as we said has been and neglected in Lobdell's run, but maybe in kind of a cliche way that I, I wasn't super impressed with. If it was just standing on its own, I would be like, what a remarkable portrayal of a young woman in a superhero comic yeah. from this era. But because there are so many other good kitty comics to compare it to, I mean, it's a testament to the strength of this character that there are so many other good kitty comics to compare this to and find this one a little bit lacking. So, you know, I'm going to emphasize the positive and the negative there. I mean, I like seeing her be a badass. I like seeing her really let loose here. But also, again, I feel like I've seen this before. And then again, as you're saying, in some of those earlier portrayals, like, you know, the alien ripoff one, which is one of the probably the first time that this happens. I mean, she does use a degree of ingenuity and stuff there, which, again, as you're saying, is sort of lacking here. Like, she doesn't remember how the soul sword works until the end. And that's really, like, unfortunate. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Are we going to talk about that now or is that going to be later in the action portion? I don't know. either we can shift to talking about action because i mean that because we can talk about representation in in conversation with that as well if we want and i can make it maybe bring justin back into it here because i know you had some thoughts about lashley's art justin and you know now's the time we can certainly talk about it yeah well i was very much like it's it's hard not to be struck up by like that 
doe-eyed depiction of of mm-hmm. Kitty, especially in conjunction with like the last two, you know, issues of of this little trilogy. But it's it's also interesting that like he continued that doe-eyed element back in in like the past, and then the instant that flashback is over, she's immediately like in like hunt mode almost. And mm-hmm. <laughs> in some of the, I don't, I don't know, it's one of the things that struck me about the action sequence, especially like when she first starts fighting Grave Moss, are that she really does mimic a almost a almost like shot for shot mm-hmm. all of those moves that Wolverine does mm-hmm. but because we saw them in like that double spread and they were supposed to be so fluid that the two seconds whatever whatever like the the breaks in an action almost make it seem like oh not only is she like mimicking his thing but also like doing it slower and like not as effective because like he's still able to get away and i don't know it's i kind of wanted yeah i kind of wanted some of that ingenuity too i i liked the i I don't like the repetition i guess i kind of liked that aspect but also like the fact that there was that yeah like that that temporal shift kind of i don't know stuck out to me well yeah but that speaks to just as you're saying to that lack of ingenuity because it's like well wolverine fights the way he does because he's got claws and an adamantium skeleton Kitty doesn't mm-hmm. have those things, so it stands to reason that she would fight differently, but she does have the power of phasing, and she's also a super genius. So wouldn't what she does incorporate those things, but not really? She's just doing Wolverine's moves, but shittier? <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> I want to push back slightly there in that she's not actually doing them shittier. Here's where I was saying very early on, I think Lashley did some some research. So those are, what Wolverine's doing is not really, there's not really ingenuity. The thing that he said about the, you know, no matter how bad you you know strike you know palm and your elbow and your web uh, they don't break that actually is part of the logic behind how a lot of martial arts and particular krav maga works palm strikes and elbow strikes huge in krav maga and so these are wolverine is teaching her some essentially a textbook kata which she uses and what i actually think is done well i'll give lashley a little bit of credit is he didn't just mimic them exactly. What he's attempting to do is he's attempting to show you the difference between how this kata looks when portrayed by, you know, a 400 pound man versus a 105 girl. You actually would throw your weight differently. And like, I can see the intention in the artwork. But that's because I understand martial arts a lot, and I don't know that the storytelling's there because it doesn't say there. I can just see that he drew it that way on purpose because I've done that palm strike and I've done that, and and I know how it looks <laughs> differently when, like, like, like I know how it looks differently when I do it at you know at 180, 190 pounds versus if I was you know I, mean, I never I never did Krav Maga, but I took some other martial arts, and if I do an elbow strike at 180 pounds versus someone I'm training who's 105, uh, there is a different way of moving your body. There's a different way of snapping your hips like there was so much logic put into that that i can tell that oh wow that's really impressive that he did that research and then i'll mention in a moment there's another part where he does no research at all when it comes to fencing so <laughs> <laughs> so it's weird like on he, the like he clearly no looked it up <laughs> I mean, well, I can, I mean, because maybe it matters, right? So, and this is, and by the way, uh, Lashley is not alone here. The swords that Kurt tends to use don't exist. Kurt uses a saber with an epee blade, and I don't know why. (laughs) Um, It is such a weird thing. Sabers are of the classic fencing weapons. There's a a saber, a foil, and an epee. 
and the saber is the one that you can actually slice with. And he uses it like you can slice, like he slashes at things, but you don't slash with an epee, but the epee is the one that's straight and has just the pointy end, and that's how they draw it. Now, when he's sword fighting with Kitty here, he's using it as though he is trying to slash at people, which is not a thing that you would ever do with an epee. So he's he's using it very much like a saber, and I don't know why. It, it's just a, it's a weird choice, and Lashley is doing this because Kurt frequently is drawn using a saber with an with an epee blade i i don't know why that happens it's just how they do it a lot <laughs> well because like they want him to have the fencing sword but they also want him to be able to slash people even though he never does so i don't see what yeah. the point is but you can but you can but... slash with this i mean you can use this you can use a saber in fencing i mean like, that is a thing yeah. that happens <laughs> it's just there's three events i don't know why they do that it's just it, it, it's like basically the difference is whether or not it's it's curved or straight and then all they have to do is mm-hmm. curve the sword and make it like not look so round and it would be fine yeah this came up recently because well when i was shopping for swords but also i had to write about it and so i had to know all the different types of swords so that <laughs> what I was talking about made sense and I was like wait what sword does Kurt usually have this isn't a real I'm confused <laughs> the combination of two uh, yeah yeah, I thought if you're yeah, combat, that was another instance yeah, I, of like I thought I was dumb, but the comics are dumb. <laughs> yeah, it's it's one of those things though. Like, how do you know? Like, you if you're a combat sports geek, you know stuff like this and like the the fighting stances that Kitty was using. Like, I recognized it immediately because I'm like, oh, okay, I know what's going on here. But like, I don't know that this matters to the regular reader, and I don't think I knew when I read this the first time. You know, thirty years ago, mm-hmm, twenty years mm-hmm. ago, whatever. Did you have more thoughts about kind of the depiction of action here, Justin? Like, I was curious about the maximalism throughout this comic i mean we've been talking about extreme 90s art a lot lately on the pod because of course that's the era we're in and there's been a number of times where it really hasn't worked for me it worked for me a lot better in this particular issue it seemed like there was a lot more care and thought put into some of these full page spreads and i mean i was thinking in particular of let me check it's page six the one where like kurt is kind of screaming and jumping through the page and he's surrounded by a number of uh close-up sort of facial shots of kitty responding to what's going on and you know thinking about stuff and figuring out what she's gonna do and it's such a busy page I mean there's no gutters because the one panel is behind all of the other ones and the figure of Kurt is jumping through all the panels and yet it still worked for me I think because of the balance of like it being a full body in the middle and like faces around the outside so it was almost like that almost felt like a do look thing of like multiple faces and multiple moments surrounded by the central figure so there were a lot of things like that throughout the issue that I was like this is maximalist but it was readable maximalism and I was curious if if you had thoughts about that as well because obviously I'm sure you've read a 90s comic or two how did this one how did this one kind of compare to what you're used to yeah I I, I kind of really liked that panel too because it also felt very like slashery in terms of like jump cuts like we we like see the, mm. the girl running and like we see her like vulnerability and she's like oh man i gotta look here i gotta think here and mm-hmm. and we continue to see like you know the monster in this case kurt kind of c- continually encroaching encroaching going back to the one of like that the first action sequences it's uh 19 where kitty does like the really great elbow directly into kurt like that was very readable but also like very very you know 
maximalist in a way and i also am just kind of a, a big sucker for like body horror so some of like the grosser sequences right at the end where grave moss is getting vomited out it's only like you know the bottom <laughs> half but like it's gross and and like the the next page after where like he's just like wet and gooey and like his flesh <laughs> is kind of torn i kind of i kind of like that it's very 90s ish you know like do we need all of the ripples and also the tattoos and also his flesh getting torn i think so um yeah <laughs> But uh, I, I liked those elements, too. There was one page that didn't quite work for me. I'll have to find it. But I wasn't a huge fan of, like, 24. Like, the action and, like, the, the composition felt weird and stilted for some reason that I can't articulate this this yeah. late into the episode. But it, it, it just felt okay on that one. Yeah, and that's the page where I keep saying she does the Rorschach line, but it's the, you know, I'm an X-Man and you're trapped in here with me, you know, line from Watchmen. But, uh, yeah, yeah that, that page has that. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> didn't really do it right, <laughs> but still, I appreciate the effort. <laughs> but yeah, I don't know. Like the fire background on that one gave a little bit of like a placelessness. It didn't feel as grounded as some of the other ones because I think I think what I liked about some of the other maximal pages is just like there were a lot of panels, but that contributed to actually what this line is supposed to communicate about like you being trapped in here with me and the action kind of exploding out of that feeling of claustrophobia and i think that that worked better for me in some of the other pages than on that particular one yeah you know one thing too i don't think it, it feels like a really missed opportunity but i don't think in any of the action sequences like kitty slashes actually give like the snicked sound which seems like oh. a really big missed opportunity for <laughs> wolverine being such a big deal here but anyways well how did you can i ask you yeah go ahead no no go ahead Annie. no no really go ahead <laughs> one thing i would contribute maybe yes very canadian one thing i would contribute is just that i i think um the degree of difficulty here in that this is the soul sword trilogy the soul sword is a symbol of the mixture of physicality and magic mm-hmm. um so so lashley has to give you a finale that is a punching contest slash sword fight slash magic contest and, and again, like there's elements of it that I think are, are like all the observations that the panel has made, I completely agree with. Um, but I think the degree of difficulty is something we should yeah. maybe mention just because it's high here to make those things intersect in sort of a, a compelling way. And I think he pulls that off. It could be better, but I think he gets the core of it nicely done. And again, I think there's no choice but to have that kind of conflict at the end of this this trilogy. It made me think, too, about about kind of Warren Ellis's philosophies of comics. And, you know, like, what was the thing that he would talk about? Was it like widescreen comics? Is that Ellis's mm-hmm. thing? Yes. Like making comics, making comics look Cinematic. very filmic. And I mean, this, yeah, and this is very early in his career. So I don't know how much that was like developed for him, but certainly one of my favorite comics of all time that i often don't talk about because of the ellis connection but was the moon knight series he did with declan shelby and just like a lot of like really beautiful wordless action throughout that comic and obviously so much of that is attributable to shelby because he's the artist on it but it's part of ellis too and his sort of philosophy to making comics and i was thinking about that a little bit here in terms of some of the action spreads i don't have a grand argument about it because Again, it's very early in Ellis's career and it feels very Lashley as well. But still, I was thinking about that in terms of the the double page spread that you flip on its side, which, you know, it's not like that was invented for this comic. That's a 90s thing. But yeah, 
I just was thinking about some of that stuff and maybe we'll come back to it as we get further into that run of Excalibur. Um, let's go around and do some final thoughts because I'm sure we've all got something that we didn't get a chance to hit on that we can come back to. But I'll start with you. I'll start with you, Mav. What would you like to talk about about this one that we didn't get a chance or anything you want to circle back to? Is it, I... is it the conclusion? <laughs> yeah. I hate when people are dumb just for storyline convention. In her relative few appearances that we've had so far, I have defended Amanda a lot, and I will defend her more. <laughs> Poor um, Amanda. <laughs> that said, this is dumb. This is okay. So she she takes the soul the sword from Kitty. Okay, I'm fine with that. I don't you know she's I'm even fine with Kitty giving the sword to Amanda because she's like you know what I can trust you and I don't want the burden of the soul sword. I believe that Kitty was willing to leave it in a rock outside the lighthouse for ages, right? So I'm I'm okay with that. What I'm not okay with is Amanda's decision to you know what's a good thing to do with the sword? Let me give it to my evil mother. Like, it's not like she doesn't know her mother is an evil, power-hungry witch. That's the entirety of her mother's character. She is aware of that, and yet she's just like, hmm, what's a good thing for me to do with this, you know, dangerous weapon that is, you know, that is being sought after by people who want to use it to kill people along the winding way? I will give it to my mother, whose quest is to, gil- is to kill everyone else along the winding way, and I know that because she's my mom and I know her. And then she just suddenly realizes that she's done something wrong all in one page. This does not feel like it's part of the story. This feels like someone forced it to be written. It's all in yeah, captions. Yeah. I don't understand why it's like that. And, and part of me thinks you know did ellis even do this but then i compare it to the fact that kitty doesn't know how the soul sword works for most of this arc she suddenly remembers that oh that's right i can use it to break possessions kitty should know this because it's the main thing that the soul sword does the soul yeah. sword wasn't used on physical people <laughs> at this point the soul sword was entirely used to disrupt like magic possession sometimes psionics and kitty Kitty is like the only non-magical person that the Soul Sword ever worked on. She could be cut by it. So like the fact that she's fighting with it at all, I, why are you trying to do this? You know how the Soul Sword works. You knew how the Soul Sword worked during Inferno. Like it, it's weird that she forgot the main power of the primary weapon of her literal best friend and roommate. <laughs> you know it is an odd thing for her to forget and just suddenly remember because that's the main thing that it does it's not really used for slicing and stuff that's i don't know so that's a pet peeve of mine even though i'm always you know i always want to say let me you know let me judge the story for what it is and for what it is this story this story is fine except that like it's so predicated on you know on the concept that this is the power of this ability. In fact, the fact that it only works on magic people is the reason that everybody wants it in the story. So why is Kitty being stupid other than to make the story happen, right? Like, that's why Grave Moss wants it is because it can be used on magic people to kill them and disrupt them. So I don't know. Yeah, I know. I almost didn't want to complain about it because I just like it's the same complaint that I had with the revision of the soul sword in general. It's just it's not as powerful as of a symbol as there as you know, it used to be when it was like part of Ileana's soul and they've changed it to just be an object and that's different. And so like, it's just (laughs) go listen to my complaints from the last two issues. (laughs) Same, same. (laughs) But yeah, like I can buy that like Margali wasn't full evil at this point. But it's still just dumb, and it clearly is editorial mandate, and yeah. 
she's okay. She might she might not be as full evil as she would be years later. But Amanda knows that she can't be trusted with the Soul Sword. Like she knew that literally like three issues ago. <laughs> you know. Yeah, I know. I know. I know. It's dumb. It's clearly dumb. But I I don't know my rejigging of it to work my slight headcanoning of it is that like amanda's whole story is never being good enough and screwing up and so it kind of works for me in a way because that's amanda you know and to the extent that she actually becomes likable it's almost because of that because she's never gonna be that top sorcerer she's never gonna make the right decisions she's always climbing out of a hole and i'm like i don't hate that it's just handled really badly here i absolutely believe there's a story where Amanda, because she is a, a a woman who still wants the love of her mommy, you know, like at some point, yeah, yeah, I can exactly. believe a story where Amanda is tricked by Margali into giving up some mm-hmm. aspect of her power, including the soul sword. I totally buy that. But show me that. Don't just say, oh, I, know, I, would, I know. like this is presented as though it was her idea. It's like, OK, well, we've got this dangerous weapon. Where can I keep this safe? I will give it to the worst person to have it because why not oh wait that was and then we don't see her like there's nothing that margley does it's just sort of a i'm gonna go give this to my mom and then she's walking away from it going wait a minute that was probably really dumb yeah you think you know like that was my problem with it it's just like yes well we can we can look forward to it being revisited in i think (laughs) 2005 is when we're gonna come back to the storyline so bye for now yeah Um, yeah Anyway, it's not, it's not and, even this volume. It's another story. <laughs> no, it is not. <laughs> anyway, Andrew, final thoughts on this one. Um, one of the the scenes we didn't talk about that I, I thought was interesting was um um Killy running Killy, <laughs> Kitty running a bluff about killing Kurt. I I, I kind of mm. liked that, and I thought that was actually like not a physical adaptation of Wolverine's fighting technique, but very much a, an adaptation of his strategic kind of thinking and calculating. Mm. Wolverine, someone who would wager his life on a poker game bluff uh, so I, I mean obviously a bluff for kitty but i thought it was cool that in an issue where she's reflecting on wolverine's teachings that she would in an impossible situation see if she can bluff her way out of it i thought that was maybe a nice bit of mentorship and play as well i don't know if it was intended or not yeah i like that i'll, I'll accept that read of it yeah i guess <laughs> my final thought was the cigars in the wolverine fight i mean <laughs> That was a lot. I mean, the double phallic cigars uh, replicated many times throughout the fight. Um, I loved it. I thought it was hilarious. Um, <laughs> I, I, I was all there for it. About the impossible, the impossible speed of you know. It's been said by many people that a, typically in a superhero comic, a, a panel takes about five seconds, maybe fifteen, mm-hmm. somewhere in that range. But he's like, yeah, this was two seconds from start to finish. I'm like that's <laughs> that's insanely fast, you know. So really, I, I think we've just discovered like a new moment, like a new like measurement of comics time, which is cigar time. That's really what yes. it is here. <laughs> yeah. yeah, makes sense. Makes sense. So that was hilarious. Um, but really, the moment I was stuck on was Kitty being like, "No, I'm like a good person. I'm not gonna kill Crave Moss." And then Amanda's like, "Well, I'm gonna go for it then." <laughs> like, I think that that's what happened. And yeah. This- like again, I was so sort of like liking that too because yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's like this Amanda's not only, afraid to get her hands dirty. Well, it's and it well that's what I said before. Like I actually buy that for Kitty, right? Because because we know Kitty will kill people if it comes down to it. But like it's the same thing. It's the Cyclops thing, and Wolverine says that I think at some point in like a I don't know. It's like a, it's more recent issue of like 
when when they bring back X Force or something, where there's like a whole team of people, you know, your 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 Wolverines and your you know Archangels and your Psylocks that Cyclops just keeps around on the X Men so that he can pretend he's a good boy. And it's like I don't kill people, but I'm just gonna turn my back here while my friend with the claws has a conversation with you, like that, <laughs> like. And I think that's what Kitty's doing here. I would never kill you, Grave Moss. So, you know, here's a soul sword. Bye. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't kill you, but my girlfriend would. Anyway, um, Justin, final thoughts from you to wrap up our discussion of this issue. Anything you wanted to talk about that we didn't get a chance or anything you want to circle back to? Really? I think we've we, we've hit all of, like the notes I had. I was just shocked at how many like unresolved things kind of went like the fact that there's like a little one little sentence that Kitty says somewhere in the middle. Oh, oh I guess everyone else is dead. And then <laughs> I'm not going to focus on that. I'm going to keep going. Uh, and I was as I was reading through, I'm like, oh, OK, we're going to get back to them. Right. We're going to figure that out. Right. And then not only do we get like like the left field, you know, swerve at the end, but it's it's, you know, uh, Amanda's like, oh, I'm going to keep this safe and sheathed. And then the night, very next panel, like Matt was talking about this completely 180 sort of turn. And also I, I know everyone will be fine in the next issue. I, I get that. But I was like, Oh, Kitty walks back to her life and not to everyone else. There's uh, a <laughs> sli- slightly weird pl- plot resolutions, but overall, overall, I just, I had a blast reading it. That's all. <laughs> <laughs> That's all we're, that we're looking for. I've been apologetic with some guests lately. So I'm happy that you had a blast reading it. <laughs> I was not born to live a man's life, but to be the stuff of future memory. The fellowship was a brief beginning, a fair time that cannot be forgotten. And because it will not be forgotten, that fair time may come again. All right, let's wrap this one up. So, Justin, thank you from the bottom of our mutant loving hearts for joining us. Before we go, we need to remind our lovely listeners about all the amazing things you get up to. So, if you would like folks to find you online, where can they find you? And are there books or projects or anything else that you want to give a specific shout out to before we go? Yeah, uh, you can find me on pretty much all social media at Justin Weigard. That's J-U-S-T-A-N-W-I-G-A-R-D. My website, all that good stuff. Really easy to get a hold of. Tweet at me about dinosaurs and Calvin and Hobbes <laughs> and uh, Turok Son of Stone if you want to talk Turok Son of Stone. Sometime later this year, uh, please go check out uh, Attack of the New B movies from McFarland Press. I'm really excited about that one. Uh, I've actually got another friend of the podcast in that book, Dr. Zach Cruzy, uh, writing about oh. he's writing about Roger Corman movies and how they intersect with sci-fi's original channel movies. And <laughs> beyond that, I'm really excited about the course I'm teaching, so I'll probably be tweeting about that. It's a course on stardew valley and game studies and i'm really excited about oh, the, cool. the work that my students are doing so oh yeah i saw you do something on social about that the other day i'm so outside the loop of game studies but i was like it sounded incredibly cool so yeah people should definitely follow you to hear about that yeah i think that's about it and uh beyond that just thanks y'all for having me on i'm 
thrilled to be here. It's surreal to be here, but very thrilled to be here. <laughs> surreal to be here. I can't live up to that, but thank you so much for joining us. So next, we are heading to Genosha for Excalibur number 86, a comic book that also features, drumroll please, the debut of Pete Wisdom. We'll talk about all of that and Warren Ellis too. <laughs> finally going to have that conversation. In the meantime, if you liked what you heard, please follow us, like, and review the podcast wherever you're listening to it or watching it. Don't forget to check out the fabulous YouTube videos, which we've done for many of our earlier episodes, plus our holiday specials, which you can find via our website or the Vox Podcast YouTube channel. As always, if you want to chat with us about Excalibur or pitch yourself as a guest a future episode let us know you can reach out via our website goshgollywow.com where we've got some fun extras and via twitter at goshgollywow where we post daily pages from whatever issue we're reading that week and more fun extras thank you andrew and Mav, for another very conclusive conversation thank you justin for mentoring us thank you all for listening and a special thanks to maximilian of thought for music for a truly epic theme song play us out